Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. Uh, my name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the architecture program curator here at the RA. This is the second event in the series Love Future, Future Found. Uh, gets curated by Tom Wilkinson, who will be chairing today the debate. And this series is accompanying an exhibition at the Architecture of Spain in the main building called Future Found, the Real and Imagined Cityscapes of Postwar Britain. Uh, this exhibition explores through the eyes of six guest curators, again, Tom is one of them, uh, the contrast between the ambitions for Britain's new post-war cityscapes and the bright future that were subsequently uh, created. Today, uh, we are living a new revival of brutalism. Every image of such a concrete is now fetishistic, currency of cool, boosting social media clicks on Instagram. However, this contrasts uh, with the radical agenda and the leftist political context that define the origins of brutalism. To discuss, uh, to discuss about that, uh, we, have, uh, we come today with an amazing panel, uh, Victoria Waltz, Owen Hatherley, and Tom Wilkinson. That Tom uh, is our chair tonight, as I said. Uh, he's history editor for Architectural Review and author of Bricks and Mortals, 10 Great Buildings and the People They Made It, uh, published by Bloomsbury. He will be introducing to the other two speakers uh, uh, and also like giving a deeper introduction to the, today's event. Um, before handing over to Tom, I would like to encourage you to join to the discussion online on Twitter using the hashtag FutureFound and tagging architecture underscore RA with capital RA. <laughs> and now, please uh, give a warm welcome to, welcome to our chair, Tom Wilkinson. Uh, thank you, Gonzalo, for the introduction and for all your help um, with these events. And thank you all for coming tonight. Um, we have a full house, more or less, which I think is indicative of the uh, current vogue for brutalism. To help me unpick that tonight, I have Victoria Walsh, who is the Professor of the History of Art and of Curating at the Royal College of Art, and Owen Hathley. So, Victoria Walsh co-curated a display at Tate Britain in 2014 on the new brutalist image. She has also been involved in the Richard Hamilton exhibition that's currently on at Tate Modern. Your specialisms, I, I understand, involve uh, the interface of architecture and other media, so I think that's absolutely crucial to what we'll be discussing tonight. And Owen Hassley is a widely published author and journalist whose first book who he won't thank me for mentioning, Millicent Modernism was published in 2009, and his most recent book, The Ministry of Nostalgia, was published in 2016, and there are many others in between. I think Owen is partially responsible for the brutalist moment that we find ourselves in. <laughs> well, I'm only citing your own words. Um, and Victoria, I think, has also contributed to that, so I'd like you all to welcome them, please. I should have said furthermore that um, Owen and Victoria will be giving presentations first and then we'll move into a discussion and then I'll be taking questions from the floor. So um, I do actually own a Trellick Tower mug. Um, it was present. I'd like to make that clear. Um, so um, obviously in the last 
three or four years, there's been a sort of avalanche of brutalist kitsch um, of varying kinds. Um, obviously, the, the, one of the sort of earliest of these um, is uh, the various things produced by people will always need plates um, with their range of sort of municipal or private um, housing complexes, London <coughs> Underground stations, new universities and other things, on mugs and tea towels and so forth. Um, things like Zupographica's little um, series of make-your-own-brutalist building, which may or may not be a first step onto owning your own brutalist building, but that's the inference that I'm going to try and make. Um, and a huge quantity of books, um, mostly of a fairly coffee-table variety. Um, some, I think, very high quality. Um, John Grindrod's uh, Concretopia, I think, uh, in particular. Um, also, to a degree, although I disagree with lots of its conclusions, Barnabas Calder's uh, Raw Concrete. Um, but these have largely been outnumbered with various kinds of opportunism. Um, but the um, real question behind all of that is, isn't this completely harmless? Is there, is there really a problem with this? Is, is there any reason why um, nostalgia for this particular period of architecture and consumption of nostalgia for that period of architecture um, should be in any way pernicious? Um, and in some ways, it's, it's enormously predictable. Um, architecture obviously disavows um, how much it's driven by fashion, but is probably one of the most fashion-driven art forms. Um, and the point in which brutalism became treated like Victoriana was probably always, always inevitable. And with younger architects, um, with people who I think are probably too young to be Thatcher's children, and by now sort of Blair's children, um, you know, are clearly moving on to postmodernism. Um, and eventually, you know, all of the stuff that I, 10 years ago, was slagging off um, will become enormously fashionable and you'll be able to buy little models of Will Alsop buildings. <laughs> um, until that glorious day, um, I think there are certain reasons why this is, to use the academic cliche, problematic. Obviously, radical politics does not inhere in reinforced concrete. Um, and in many ways, lots of the approaching it in this way is quite anachronistic, something I will, I will try and justify at the end. Um, but the, the particular association of brutalism um, and its widest definition with social democratic politics and mass housing is something I think is largely confined to the United Kingdom. There's examples of it elsewhere, but, 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 but there... I think it's, it's particularly sharp. For instance, have this sort of discourse would make no sense whatsoever in the United States, I think. Um, you know, that there, I think, brutalism was largely a style for um, universities, government buildings, and, of course, the FBI, um, who have quite the brutalist headquarters. Um, only a little bit longer, and they could have got Michael Graves to do it. Um, but the... Um, that doesn't necessarily mean I think that this is, a, this is a mistake, a misreading, to see these things in this way. Um, a particular conjunction came together to, to associate these things at that particular time. And one thing which I think is um, worth recalling is just how much, from the 1970s to the 1990s, this architecture was considered utterly beyond the pale. Um, 
One book which I think is worth picking up in this respect is uh, by the then president of the Royal Institute of British Architects and the leader in the now entirely forgotten community architecture movement, Rod Hackney, called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, which has a section on modernist architects called The Villains, illustrated of a picture of Erno Goldfinger and a picture of Dennis Lasden and a picture of Richard Seifert. Um, and this was, again, a, 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 as completely consensual a position between about 1970, roughly between about 1974 and about 2000, as it is now to consider Will Alsop inherently funny. Um, and I think with somewhat less reason. And that was um, something which was, I think, was held across the political spectrum. Um, the community architecture movement um, considered itself to be very much of the political left, despite the fact that it, um, one of its major sponsors was Prince Charles. Um, and from the kind of Roger Scruton conservatism to the kind of London New Left around the GLC and, and, and Liverpool around Militant, um, modern architecture and all its permutations, and especially brutalism, was considered a sort of elitist plot against the working class. Um, and the sort of revaluation of it since then um, has, I think, sort of tried to find in it things which um, would not have been clear at the time. That doesn't mean they're not there. I think they are there. But they would not have been clear at the time. Only the, the, the change in political system and the change particularly in the way housing has worked and the change in architectural patronage has made these things look a lot more radical than they are. So housing is really, really the central issue in all of this. And what I'm mainly going to talk about is housing because the overwhelming majority of brutalist buildings in Britain are council housing. Um, doesn't mean that the best are council housing. In many cases, um, the worst examples can be council housing. But they are, they are the bulk of it. Even after decades of, of demolitions and recladding, they are the bulk of it. And housing in the UK is um, a particularly sort of moralised discourse. Um, and I think that the, the, the sort of particular association that, um, that brutalist architecture has, has had since the 1970s was with crime, specifically. Um, was with working class areas devolving into, um, to use the racialized epithet, an underclass status. Um, something I think symbolized here by Tony Blair and a balcony at the Aylesbury estate, uh, being guarded by policemen, because otherwise, who knows, he would be torn limb from limb by the feral, socially excluded masses. Um, and this discourse has sort of come back recently and sort of um, Southwark Council's attempts to demolish the sort of, I would say, semi-brutalist estates it built in the early 1970s, um, bolstered by increasingly ludicrous stories from the likes of Harriet Harman about getting into the lifts and people injecting heroin into their testicles and other such nonsense. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that however nonsensical the discourse is, that, this, that these areas hadn't become, um, via specifically planned housing policies, um, sort of repositories for those who were excluded from the Thatcherite settlement, excluded from the property-owning democracy. Um, and in many ways, um, Thatcherite policy, in a, in a way that was extreme even for the time, was aimed at eradicating council housing. Uh, and, and, and the 
initially the means for to do this um, via the right to buy, I suppose, a kind of it sort of begins with a more an, an attempt to sort of program into council housing processes of gentrification that usually can come across as quite organic. Um, and the, the, the places this happened most were the cottage estates of the 1930s, which were not remotely modernist. And the best of those, in many cases, um, had got sold off so quickly and become so desirable that they were sort of almost considered to be um, as if private housing. And for most of the 80s, the areas which were not bought up in right to buy um, were usually brutalist housing estates. Um, and... The, the, the sort of process, the gradual process of the revaluation and their gentrification initially <coughs> takes place through the right to buy's more sort of slow moving mechanisms of privatization. And I think that's been the case with the way that, um, that there have been social changes in what I think is arguably the first building to be uh, appreciated for its brutalist architecture in Britain. Um, post-1960s anyway, which is Trellick Tower, and then in a slightly different way in the Brunswick Centre. Um, the means by which Trellick Tower became sort of desirable um, are, as Barnas Barnabas Calder rightly points out in his book, um, fairly, um, in many ways, fairly laudable. Um, two decisions were made under pressure from the Tenants' Association um, by Kensington and Chelsea Council, who by that point owned it. It was originally built by the London County Council. Um, that A, there would be a concierge on the block, and B, that people would be housed on Trellick Tower only on the condition that they wanted specifically to live in Trellick Tower. And this plus, I think, the, the fact that it's at the end of Portobello Road rather than by the Blackwall Tunnel, um, means that, has meant that it, 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 it sort of came to work for people that lived there in a way that it hadn't previously. And the overall majority of it is still council housing. I've heard 85% mentioned, this may not be a recent figure, um, but largely those that live there, despite what I can imagine would be enormous incentives to want to borrow money and then sell up. I mean, you could sell a flat in Trellick Tower for a million pounds, um, are not doing so, by and large. Um, the Brunswick Centre story is um, a little bit um, less obviously um, sympathetic. Um, the, the buildings were not originally designed as council housing, something which I think made them much more easy to um, justify the, the sort of transformations that happened to them. Um, it was originally done for a private developer and then taken over by Camden Council when that developer went bust and then um, finished in lesser materials, apparently. And the sort of central shopping centre in the middle um, was sold off and became the kind of uh, Carluccio's world that it is now. Um, and again, on the more recent statistics I've seen on it, the um, amount of people who have, who have bought and then sold is much higher. Um, I think around half of the Brunswick Centre is now private housing and sells for ridiculous sums of money, um, given that this is right slap bang in the middle of central London. But these are, kind of, but these are subtle processes. This is not subtle. Um, and Keeling House is the first example, I think, of a sort of outright top-down 
social clearance in the, in the transformation of a brutalist building. And there's a certain irony to this, I think, in the way that, the, 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 that Keeling House, in its, in its way, reveals some of the social thinking that was going on in brutalism. And one should not necessarily exaggerate this. Um, in many cases, the, you know, the brutalism has a slightly McCarthyite genesis in some ways in um, Rainer Benham's original essays and is often about sort of red-baiting towards people who are doing things like Alton East and um, the Lansbury Estate doing this much softer modern architecture who were considered rather spuriously to be socialist realists. Um, but the social thinking behind these buildings was often based on a rejection of a certain idea of, um, of a sort of platonic modernist city uh, without streets, without conviviality and so forth. And brutalists from sort of outright ideologues like the Smithsons to, um, to sort of more um, sort of followers, I think in many, at least in this respect, like Dennis Lasden, um, wanted to somehow um, build housing estates and housing that could um, allow for the sort of convivial working class life that they, that they, that they saw around them that would have social spaces in them that could be used, that wouldn't be quiet. Um, Rainer Bannum, in fact, in, in uh, The New Brutalism, talks of some um, pride about the fact that um, a particular Japanese um, brutalist block has fights in it. Um, something which, at the time, um, was notable because of the fact that these places were considered to be completely kind of devoid of social interaction and sort of empty and quiet and platonic and clean. And the idea that people would be, would be naughty in them was, was seen by Bannum as a sign of their success. Anyway, um, the um, ideas behind Keeling House and its creation as a sort of cluster block were largely around this sort of idea that, that, that these social spaces could be created. By the, by the late 90s, most people that lived there were elderly, and the concrete wasn't in spectacular condition when the building was listed, and its owners, Tower Hamlets Council, decided that it would be much easier to just sell it to a developer, which they did, um, who then promptly marketed it to the uh, creative industry industries. Um, the long-standing rumour is that Damon Alban has one of the flats, whether this is true or not, I don't know. Um, but the... <coughs> If you look at the way that it was marketed, if you look at the, the kind of clips and the adverts that the, that, the, that the owners were doing in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was specifically marketed on its sort of um, modernist chic as a possible place to live if you were a wealthy bohemian. Um, so along with this came two design changes, one of which was building um, penthouses at the top, which you can just see peeking out there, um, but also gating it. So make absolutely ensuring that this sort of street life that, that Lasden rather romantically thought would take place there could not take place, and that it was literally walled off from the rest of Bethnal Green. Um, moves like this, I think, have not been followed enough by many of the people who have um, published or, or, or written about or done tours around or made models of brutalist buildings. Um, and that, the sort of divide between architectural appreciation and social policy can be seen particularly strongly in Robin Hood Gardens and Park Hill. Um, Robin Hood Gardens um, 
Frost famously building design to, by, by now famously building design to petition to try and save it. Um, and this, having these sort of various um, lords and de Bottons um, trying to save the building um, was in many ways a gift to Tower Hamlet's council, I think. Um, rather than this being a social argument in which the question was, um, this is an area of social housing next to Canary Wharf and an area which is changing very fast, we should retain it, to this is a modernist icon and we should retain it because it's beautiful, um, meant that Tower Hamlets and their efforts to demolish it and build, of course, overwhelmingly private housing on the site in order to be able to continue paying their bills, um, could sort of present themselves as, as sort of defenders of the people that lived there. Um, if Lord Rogers likes it so much, why doesn't he move out of his two houses, not together, in Chelsea, um, and go and live there? Um, and in many ways, the story of Park Hill itself shows how spurious that argument was. But it was quite a strong one in the local press. Um, and in certain cases, such as the developer Stuart Lipton pointing to um, Keeling House is an example of what could happen to Robin Hood Gardens. Solu solutions for the estate would involve um, the exact same process of social cleansing that the residents were being subjected to by Tower Hamlets, but just the retention of the building. At the moment, it's getting the worst of both worlds, really, um, and some really polite buildings in brick. Um, and the, um, the story of Park Hill, I could go on about this at length, and I will try not to. Um, partly because it makes me unconscionably angry, partly because I've done it a million times before. But the, um, the process there is sort of really sort of killing house on a gigantic scale. Um, and the, the process of gentrification that, that, that happened there, again, very much from the top down, as of killing house, um, except in this case it wasn't even sold to a developer, it was given to a developer. Um, who that were then funded via lots of public money from the Homes Communities Agency and English Heritage to then turn it into luxury flats. Um, was nominated for the Sterling Prize despite being less than one quarter finished, something which I wouldn't usually think would allow you to be nominated for an architectural award. Um, currently, it is taking around three times as long to refurbish as it took to build, and it's not even been refurbished properly yet. Again, one quarter of it has been refurbished. Um, this has happened in a city which has a long and ever lengthening council house waiting list. Um, but the, one of the sort of things that's curious in what's happened in Park Hill is the way that concrete itself has become part of, part of the selling point. So the, 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 the repair of the concrete doesn't look particularly brutalist. And obviously the, um, the anodized aluminium panels that were put in place of the brick isn't particularly brutalist. But the, um, the interiors are now in raw concrete, which was not the case when they, were, um, when they were built. The assumption was that people would go in there and they would, as they usually did, put flock wallpaper in and do all sorts of things and would, um, would turn it into that, would make it their own, essentially. And by brutalist architects, by contrast with the kind of modernists of the interwar years and the minimalists of recent years were totally okay with that. Um, whereas currently you're sort of supposed to sort of, if you're going to live in an icon, you must therefore sort of furnish um, your 
brutalist apartment in as faithful a way as, as possible to the brutalist idea, despite the fact that wouldn't have been done in the 60s. If you look at the Stefio Razzi's very interesting recent book, Modernist Estates, it's very striking how every single modernist estate, when taken over by uh, a graphic designer who's recently moved there, manages to look exactly the same as the other. Um, so I think lots of this is a, is a process which has been going on in London for a long time of um, sort of pioneers discovering a style and then sort of moving into different areas of London as they noticed that particular style. And it happened in the 60s and 70s in areas like Camden and Islington and slightly later in Labrick Grove and Notting Hill um, with the rediscovery of Georgian and Regency architecture, um, which in its more sort of banal developer-driven end was not held in particularly high estimation, um, but was then um, in some ways rightly, in some ways not, literally revalued. Um, a similar process happened to Victoriana in the 80s and 90s. And as London sort of ran out of genuine brownfield sites, ran out of real warehouses, and ran out of, of, of new areas that you can move in and get cheap Georgian or Victorian stock, it was almost inevitable that eventually they would end up uh, moving to brutalism. And I find it impossible to extricate the appreciation of that style um, currently from that project. And in many ways, the, 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 the tours organized by such as the National Trust of Brutalist Buildings have a sort of safari-like quality to them, I feel. Um, and I think that's, that, that's particularly obvious in what's happening in Balfour Tower, um, which is a sort of quite extreme example of sort of deregist gentrification, really of a process initially of um, according with the government's, then government's decent homes program of there being a lot of pressure to, uh, for the local council to sell in order for it to be refurbished and then given to a, so given to a housing association who then found that they didn't have the money to refurbish because it's a listed building, who then decided that therefore they should sell it but have an interim where it could become artist studios. And if it became artist studios, the pioneers would come in on safari and the, um, the area would then acquire a buzz that would make it all the more desirable when it was then sold on the open market as enormously expensive housing next to Canary Wharf. Um, and because of this, because of this change that I think has happened, we need to be enormously careful with this stuff. This, is, this, this, stuff, this is so close to particular pernicious social forces that are at work in Britain at the moment that this, that this is not neutral stuff. Um, council estates are currently, um, in government policy, being classified as brownfield. If you're in an area of high value, which includes pretty much any city centre site in a large British city now, certainly in London, um, councils can be pressured to sell off their, their council housing. Um, this means that, that, that this stuff is absolutely ripe for, 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 for being sold off and being redeveloped. And if you're going in there creating a buzz, this is, this is going to be one of, the, one of the likely consequences. So to come back to the original point, I think that this is, this is one of the reasons why this architecture now appears to be much more radical than it was at the time. At the time, this was the architecture of a consensus that was shared largely by the left of the Tory party and the right of the Labour party. 
about the um, need for fairly top-down municipal solutions to a housing crisis that had been inherited from the 19th century and from World War II. Um, the um, end result was often quite architecturally ambitious, but in many cases was not. Um, there is a difference in, you know, in, in, in architectural ambition between the average 1960s concrete estate and something like Balfour Tower. But as a social project, they're very much part of the same thing. And now if you were to propose anything like this, um, it would be considered absurd. If you were to propose that the Greater London Authority were to go around the, the, the major architects in Britain and go, right, can you design us a block that is 100% council housing? Um, here's your budget, go off and do it. If they were to get a go, go and do this with, with architectural students, such as Peter de Bory um, at Camden, this would, be, this would just be completely impossible. The, 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 to, to circumvent the market as much as this for an unambiguously working-class clientele would be considered political extremism. So because of that, this stuff which at the time... Uh, any second... That at the time can be seen as an architecture of, of sort of technocratic consensus. Seems like an almost impossible moment of radicalism and social ambition. And I shall stop there. Thank you very much, Owen, for that. Um rich summary of the state of brutalism today, fetishized, despised, and also used as a sort of political weapon. Um, now, from the present, we're going to move backwards in time uh, to consider the, what brutalism really meant to begin with, because although an enormous quantity has been published on brutalism, I think and uh, I, I wonder how many people in this room have, have written a book about brutalism. <laughs> I'm surprised that it's so few. Um, how many people in this room have written on brutalism? Several. And I think there are a few others who, who may be holding back. Um, many people have written about brutalism with varying degrees of success um, and with varying interpretations. Um, but I still think that the, what brutalism meant in its moment is something that hasn't really been unpicked completely, even, even now. Um, and I hope and believe that Victoria is going to do some of that work for us now by, talking, by looking at the brutalist moment and, and its relation to the image. Thank you. Great. Um, thanks, Tom. And as Tom said, I think we're sort of going backwards a little bit now because, um, and I'm going to sort of improvise between uh, some reading and some, um, some comments, but um, Claire and I first met um, uh, on a visit, my first visit, uh, I can't actually remember if it was her first visit, um, to one of the icons of brutalism, the Hun Stanton School in Norfolk, built by the Smithsons. And um, it was uh, choreographed... Uh, by, in fact, Soraya Smith and the daughter of Alison and Peter, who thought we ought to come together because we'd apparently been sharing our concerns about a particular conundrum and questions that we had. <laughs> so um, we first met, uh, as I said, at Hunstanton. 
And there we discovered uh, we were both grappling with uh, some of the same questions and issues, but from two different very perspectives. Mine as a kind of art historian and curator, and uh, Claire from, from architectural history background. Um, and one of our key questions, and, and the one I'm going to concentrate on just briefly uh, for the next 10 minutes, um, was how to make sense of the visual assemblage um, that appeared in Rainer Bannum's seminal article, The New Brutalism, published in the Architectural Review in December 1955. And this is the visual assemblage I'm talking about. Um, I hope you can see it a bit at the back. Um, so as you can see, this, this <coughs> assemblage brought together in a gridded arrangement images including a photograph of Hans Downton School, the Smithson's designs for a Soho house, you can see those uh, on the right, um, the tactile sculpture of Eduardo Paolozzi, which is also, you can actually see the actual object itself at the Whitechapel at the moment, and the visceral paintings of Magda Cordell. It also included an image of the exhibition Parallel of Life and Art, which Rainer Bannum defined in this article as the locus classicus of new brutalism. And that's this image you really can't see uh, down here, but I'll show you more in a minute. Um, collectively, these images reflected for Bannum what he described as a new interest in the patterns and overtones of human association, which introduced images of human as well as formal value. And I think that's something we might want to come back to. Um, and Fabana manifested for him in three key characteristics of what he described as the new brutalist aesthetic. And these were memorability uh, as an image, clear exhibition of structure, and valuation of materials as found. For us, this exhibition um, that we then went on to uh, organize at Tate Britain called New Brutalist Image was for us an attempt to return to public discussion our findings um, as we looked into this question of this um, visual anomaly um, of Hunstanton School, which many scholars have commented was a mistake, Bannon wasn't quite thinking through, and felt that Hunstanton School shouldn't be amongst this assemblage. So we were looking at this anomalous uh, relationship between this and parallel life and art, this locus classicus. And here you see the installation of this exhibition that took place at the ICA in 1953 which the Smithsons had organized with Paolozzi and an artist photographer called Nigel Henderson. And it included 122 photographic panels that brought together ready-made images, as-found images from across all sorts of disciplines, journals, um, practices, um, but all together converged through this one medium. Um, so in our exhibition, New Brutalist Image, um, we were really trying to bring back into discussion around new brutalism. Um, some of the cultural politics of image and image making that Bannum had been proposing in this article. But we were also uh, keen to kind of think about why this sudden proliferation of interest in new brutalism was also not perhaps engaging with the notion of image culture that was circulating in post-war British art, this kind of focus exclusively on architecture. Um, the key to answering um, for us this, this question this, about Bannum's formulation of the idea of a memorability of image, however, was for us clear that it didn't lay bare itself in this article, New Brutalism, but actually had uh, been uh, made more apparent in Bannum's own review of the exhibition Parallel Life and Art in 1953. And here's a photograph of the group of four. Um, and in Bannum's review of um, 
the exhibition in 1953. He made, uh, and it's worth noting that this review came under the, under the key title photography. It didn't say parallel flight, it said photography. And in this review, Bannum, uh, already very familiar and had written on photography in relation to Richard Hamilton and his exhibition, Growth and Form in 51. Bannum drew attention to the whole point of the photographic image and its currency as an artifact, an, an artifact whereby all representational value, all indexical value, think of the idea of the photograph as representing something, but suspending that, um, that it in, was in fact not only an artifact of its own, but that it also could be through the rapid process of reproduction, of mass media reproduction, actually transformed from an image into a symbol, into an icon of its time. So that process of multiplication. So it is in this, this use of photography as an independent image-making tool and medium that Bannum was able to make a link in his argument between such disparate objects as Hunstanton School, Parallel Life and Art, um, the work of Jackson Pollock, um, Magda Cordell and others into this categorization of memorability as image. From our point of view and what we tried to achieve in this exhibition, um, CM, uh, New Brutalist Image, was uh, moreover the whole um, point of how the term image had started to circulate in post-war, particularly through Bannum's use, that image was in fact being used in a special sense, as Bannum called it, um, and that this image was redolent and dependent on the idea of photography as this kind of binding, unifying new form of aesthetic, that it could generate a new aesthetic interface between the production of visual culture and its experience, that you could remake society through the visual by reordering the visual. And you could particularly see um, this capacity of photography and the idea of how the relationship between the grid and photography and collage could create through a kind of idea of a relational aesthetic of linking things, could actually um, put together different disparate uh, moments and different um, experiences of art, architecture, and design into the same uh, one uh, form, one visual form, and produce a new kind of visual manifesto. So something in and above text. And you can see this in the CM Grill, uh, which the Smithsons produced in 1953 and included photographs um, by Nigel Henderson of East End Life. And this was a proposition about redesigning um, our urban futures in post-war uh, Europe at the time, something interrelational rather than um, uh, sort of Corbusier's modernist gridded plan. So through our research uh, into this new kind of visual lexicon that was being produced um, through particularly this group of four and the proliferation of photography, and in particular, the photography and photographs of Nigel Henderson, who Alison Smithson called the original image finder. We identified two core modalities within uh, the collaboration around Paralife and Art and Hunstanton School and its photographic documentation. And these two modalities are what we called uh, and have referred to as framing and pattern making. And this is an installation shot of our uh, exhibition uh, new Brutalist Image at Tate Britain. So these two uh, modes, framing and pattern making, for us exist in counterpoint in, in our understanding. One denoting an extensive field, an infinite field, this pattern making, and it's quite interesting that some of those original, some of the photographs of Park Hill Estate, you see that notion of 
infinity going on. Um, and the other, the idea of gridding, of denoting a crop, a way of cutting out a piece of the continuum for focused attention. And in a way, one mode could be argued about staging the visual for visual consumption, and the other could be understood as a mode of staging the spectator of a kind of democratization of visual culture, of actively engaging you, the viewer, into the process of image making. Um, the Tate Britain display uh, posited that this photographic image making underpinned and bound new brutalism together in its very earliest development. The term we put forward in the exhibition, New Brutalist Image, positioned photography as the primary medium of communication within this post-war period, and the photographic image as a crucial remediating tool able to synthesize the rapid disjunctures of contemporary culture that were going on, particularly with the rise of technology and reproduction. We also argued, and there's some more shots, these are more shots, so you see, and we also produced a gridded display, so there was this kind of um, combination of the grid and pattern making going on in the display. Um, we also argued that in, uh, in both art and architectural history, the misrecognition of the status of the photograph as an independent artifact had produced a very limited understanding um, of how image circulation and image production had worked in post-war um, culture. And that in fact, uh, what had been misunderstood was how the photograph as an artifact, as a kind of symbol um, and production of symbol and a new iconography had in fact been part of a contemporary set of discourses um, framed by information theory, communication theory, and in particular um, what many of these artists and architects were also interested in was cybernetics and the idea of feedback systems of communication. And you can see really what I've put up. These are photographs from Henson's uh, house in Bethnal Green. Um, this is a room of Jane Drew's um, house, uh, which Henderson and Paolozzi created fabrics that um, decorated. Um, but really, these are really about showing you pattern making going on um, in the visual, just showing you the kind of role of the photograph and its inclusion. Um, these are pages from Alison Smithson's uh, scrapbook, which... Uh, I didn't put an image in, but the scrapbook is about that big, and every single page has images. And inside um, the scrapbook, this kind of visual proliferation and juxtaposition of pattern making and rethinking uh, historical trajectories of visual culture. And these are some of Henderson's photographs. Um, also included photographs that were then included in Parallel Life and Art. So this kind of circulation and currency of, of visual images moving around different platforms, as we might call it now. So what we've also um, argued, and more recently in the online journal, British Art Studies, is that in misrecognizing the role of photography and this remediating aspect I've talked about, along with the concept of the memorability of image um, that Bannum referred to, um, is the loss of this understanding of the desire by this group of collaborators and others around them, including Hamilton, um, to propose really a, a new form of uh, production of visual and a, a new hierarchy of a visual order. And in fact, Parallel Life and Art was called, it had three different titles, one of which was Indications of a New Visual Order um, and, and Reordering the Visual. Um, but at the core of this new form of visual communication based on pattern making and pattern, identif pattern identification uh, produced and re 
redistributed through mass reproduction, lay the promise for this group of both personal and cultural regeneration beyond the confines of traditional taste and convention, of a form of visual democratization of culture. Such conceptualizations were subsequently taken on more aggressively by people like Hamilton, but they were clearly embedded for this group in the early proposals of parallel life and art, as an early working statement of the Smithsons indicates when they wrote, this, this exhibition, Parallel Life and Art, will provide the first atlas to a new world. The method used will present a dramatic yet rational picture of the time, a new kind of Rosetta Stone. Indeed, the inclusion of Parallel Life and Art and illustrations taken um, included illustrations taken from, this was a very popular book, um, the work of uh, linguist and paleographer David Diringer. Um, and it was called The Alphabet, A Key to the History of Mankind. And there were a number of panels and illustrations in the exhibition from this um, and references to it, highlighting the level of interest uh, this group had in understanding the photographic image as not only a new form of uh, visual communication, but a new visual language. It is this non-hierarchic, relational and distributed visual language of image circulation made possible by the photographic image and perhaps exemplified by the scrapbook that I think so clearly prefigured um, where we are now today with the whole kind of digital proliferation of image circulation of the networked image. And I think while um, it is very easy to think about the reproducibility of the brutalist building within Instagram and, and blogging, I think one also needs to think about um, the, the relational and networked uh, cultures and ecologies of image that is being produced by new collectivities online. And I think that's a correlation to the kind of aspirations that the architects and designers had about the new communities they were also trying to imagine and revisualize um, in the spaces. Um, and I think I will stop there. Thank you very much for that wonderful contribution. I feel like we've come at brutalism from several different angles, but I want to just go back a little bit to the situation today and, and just to give some, you know, a, a, maybe a, a, an idea of the, the incredible broadness of the different modes in which brutalism has been received. So we have serious books, we have coffee table books, we have good books that have got brutalism in the title, even though they're nothing about brutalism. Um, there are blogs, one by Claire's student called Fuck Yeah Brutalism, which is enormously popular Tumblr blog that aggregates images of brutalism from all, uh, and things that perhaps are not brutalism from um, all around the world. Um, there are appreciation groups on Facebook, there are plates, there are tote bags, there have been exhibitions, countless articles, um, there's a whole shop selling brutalist ephemera in the Barbican Centre now, which is the first thing you see when you enter the Barbican is a shop selling brutalist hat. Um, the most recent and perhaps most bizarre example of this stuff I saw was a grandfather clock carved from marble, which claims to be inspired by brutalist architecture. Um, and I didn't see the price tag of that. Um, so... 
it would be, you know, it's hard to say what brutalism is sometimes, it seems. And, and even from listening to your expert testimony regarding what brutalism was at the time, it, it is a bit of a moving target. Um, but I think something that, for all of the negative and pernicious and perhaps, uh, well, certainly uh, acquisitive and spectacular uses of brutalism today, there is indisputably a popular interest in brutalist architecture now. Um, and I wonder if any of you could speak about that a little. Is there, is there any element of that that is, uh, that would fulfill perhaps or offer some hope towards a Benjaminian um, perspective on on the past. Um, why why do people love brutalism so much? And I hope later, in fact, shortly, um, when the audience join in, people will be able to tell us something about what their feelings are. But why why is brutalism a, the popular success that it is today? I think I might ask Owen that first. Okay. Um, I think there's all sorts of reasons, and I think <coughs> those interests vary. Those reasons vary depending on where you go. Um, about a year ago, a bit longer than a year ago, I was at a conference on brutalism and 1960s architecture in Vienna, um, which has very little, actually. Um, and in amongst this, they sort of, the, 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 the conference partly took place in an, in an area called Aspern that was recently built. <coughs> and I was walking around it with these sort of Austrian architects who were talking about, you know, how um, pointing out the various things that it had. Uh, it had, you know, so most of it was, was social. The rents were, were quite low. Um, they had elaborate sort of childcare facilities, films, you know, it's like cinemas in the blocks, like pools on the top floors. Just, you know, and, and what would seem to a British and I think American observer as a, as a massive level of social provision. And I was sort of like, well, most of the things that I find interesting in brutalist architecture in that moment, you still have. So what exactly is your problem? And I think that, and, and so realizing that, that there, that they were interested in it purely because of the architectural ambition. Like this stuff was like most current, you know, sort of housing anywhere in Europe and that it was, it's, it's fairly classical based on street plans, quite traditional, quite small scale. I mean, not twee, but you know, it's, it's and it's based very much on cladding on wood cladding, on render, and so forth. Um, and the idea of having this kind of like, the memorability as image of brutalism and the kind of extreme tangibility of brutalism um, is enormously seductive in that particular architectural context. But there, the sort of social aspect was almost, was irrelevant because they've never stopped doing that. Um, so I think there are so many different possible um, approaches to it that it's very, very difficult to, very difficult to generalize. I think sometimes, you know, it, and, and they can be happening at once. You can have a sort of social nostalgia combined with a quite uncritical um, sort of embrace of sort of nostalgic fetishism for objects. You know, the, the, these things can all happen at once. You can, you get people quite often saying in the same breath, you know, Park Hill is a wonderful utopian project and these people couldn't possibly be expected to have lived in it. Only those of us that work at Sheffield Hallam University could possibly understand this building. Um, you know, I think that, that, that there's, there's so much going on in it. Um, and I think you almost can't extricate all of these, all of these different threads. Um, I mean, I think I would 
something I'm always struck by as, as someone who's not sitting in the architecture world. But when architects come to me all about what we've done or written, you know, the, the interest and the popularity um, is not just around the architecture as the image. It's around, and we can't dissociate the Smithsons from this debate. They, they almost are most of the debate. Um, it's about urbanism. It is actually, it's not just about the buildings. It's about what the aspiration was for the entire spatial organization and situation of the buildings, which is where this interest in the Siam Grill and Henderson's <coughs> photographs of street life. And it's about how to retrieve, and, and there's a lot of, it's not, I wouldn't say it's nostalgia, but it is about how to reanimate that public space, that notion of collectivity of street life. Now, that might be nostalgic in itself, but I think there's, um, there's a lot of, you know, that's where a lot of the politics of public space is because that's under threat as well. So it's, it's kind of getting um, taken up in a lot of those debates where art design, you know, a new kind of cultural geography. But, you know, if you look at the proliferation of courses at postgraduate level, you know, whether it's Bartlett or, you know, AA, it's around those kind of spatial organisation and urbanism. So I think it's not just about architecture being and the image. I think it's also thinking about the wider urbanism. And that has a whole new iconography that's being retrieved from this moment of brutalism as well, that kind of notational type of... And sort of continuing in that same vein a little, uh, one of the things that struck me in your presentation, Victoria, was um, the idea of cybernetics mm. as an influence mm. on uh, the, the image networks of the brutalists and their collaborators. And I wonder if I can... I mean, it's, a, it's such an obvious... Uh, join to make between the different parts of, uh, of what we've heard this evening, but it, could it be argued that there is something about brutalism and its interest in networks and cybernetics and it's the image value of the buildings that makes it peculiarly ripe for rediscovery in this moment of social media um, of the networked image? I mean, could you call that the, the sort of... Uh, the dialectical moment, as, as Benjamin would have said, is that where the lightning flash happens, and is that, is that one of the big reasons why it is so pervasive now? Yes. I mean, I, one of the things I find, um, not that I want to criticise your student, but one of the things I find somewhat <laughs> so, 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 sort of odd about Fakir brutalism is the insistence, which in many ways is very, very rigorous, of always having these images from the time. And one of the things that I find... Is, is lost about the, 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 the debates happening around the independent group and the ICA and so forth, is this interest in sort of, um, for want of a better word, as we were saying earlier, mess of, of sort of buildings that, get, that are getting used. And it was very much, a, um, I think, a current idea at the, at, 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 in the 1950s, this idea that, that modern architecture might age and that that might be a good thing. You know, the, the, the Wiesenhof sort of Stuttgart style of modernism is very much, you know, has to be like, you know, like, like a Regency terrace, has to be constantly have it stuck over renewed or it looks terrible. And the idea of something that could look good when it's gone manky was quite crucial to that. And so I find it strange that so many of the brutalism sort of aggregators aren't interested in documenting those changes. Um, and in many ways, I probably find what happens on on Flickr and to a degree on Instagram probably more interesting because of the fact that so often it's about the, the current status of these buildings and what's happened to them and how, they, and how they've adapted and how they haven't. 
does that that doesn't really answer the question, but I think not it's, quite. It's but it takes us into another there. interesting problem, which is the whole realm of ruin porn, uh, because then we've got some Peters in Cardross. Yeah, which well, is, I mean, is a is a great sort of brutalist ruin. But that's that. But the that, that turns up again and again and again simply mm. because it is one of the few ones that is really a ruin. Yeah. Which so often these things aren't. I mean, when I was writing about Eastern Bloc architecture, it was, you know, there's this enormous discourse of like the ruins of the Soviet Empire. And you have to look quite hard in the average Eastern European city to find ruins and find dereliction. These are places where people live, um, and that. They're sort of airbrushing out, I find, worrying. And I find the ruined discourse is probably worse than the Instagram discourse, really. I don't know. Or maybe they go together. Well, I don't know, but, but, um, but in the, 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 the ruins are always constructed. Um, you know, that when, they, when, when the Acropolis is kind of constructed in the 18th and 19th century, it's about, you know, sort of going around and James Athenian Stuart paying someone to demolish their house so that he could better draw the, the, the Erechtheion. You know, this is... Um, and it's... It's a very loaded and dubious thing, and I think should be avoided as much as possible. When I was talking about the kind of two modalities that we'd identified, I think there's one of the, coming back to your original question, is that difference between staging the visual, which architecture has done very well with the rise of photography, and staging the building and building buildings for the photographic image to market, and staging the spectator, which was, you know, the much more democratic kind of inclusive politics of image making that the independent group and, and, the, and the theorists around brutalism were you know, particularly exemplified in This Is Tomorrow. So even when the architects come together, it's about participation. And I think all of that um, idea of convergence of media, convergence of art, design, and architecture that was going on post-war, pre-professionalization of all of the an academicization of all these practices is what I think you see a lot of young people and a lot of people try, uh, wanting to retrieve, which is not that ghettoization and segregation, which is not answering 21st century problems. I think it's fair to say that, that, that none of this has originally come from architects. I think it's come almost entirely from, from writers and bloggers and photographers, and then that revival has been noticed by architects post factum. I don't think architects are responsible for the revival of brutalism at all. I think they're a bit baffled by it. Can we pause briefly there? And is is there any neo brutalist, neo neo brutalist architecture? There's a lot of like stuff that I suppose resembles things like um, what's that Sterling and Gowan estate in southwest London? You know the kind of like ham. There's There's loads of stuff that looks like that. There's a lot of like brick and concrete grids in London at the moment. Um, and I think there's people, people like Sergius and Bates obviously seem interested in that side of brutalism, the side that later ends up with kind of Cambridge architecture and stuff like that. And I think that that has always kind of been simmering under and now is massive in this really awful and parodic way all over London. But, the, um, but whether or not the like, sort of high brutalism is revivable, I think that um, things like insulation and health and safety make it almost implausible. There are people like Grafton, of course, who are working in climates where that's not such an issue with their huge um, university building in Lima that they just uh, sort of semi-finished, which is, in case you haven't seen it, is a huge... It can only be described as brutalist Mm -hmm. building, really, and it looks like the bleachers of uh, 
sports arena or a segment thereof that's detached and run away. But, I mean, one of the recent brutalism books that takes this to an extreme of sort of going around and photographing OMA buildings and Saha buildings and saying they're brutalist because they're big and aggressive, at which point, you know... Then you, well, I suppose Jonathan Meads does this as well, of like, and so therefore John Vanbrugh is brutalist and nothing means anything. Yeah, I mean, perhaps we could touch on... I don't know. Claire, do you know Jonathan Meads? Has he made it across the pond? OK, so he's a, <laughs> he's a, a cultural critic restaurant critic um, and, and sort of architectural writer and broadcaster who was involved in the Brutalist revival from the beginning but finally made yeah, a film uh, about Brutalism quite late on. Well, I think Remembering the Future is basically about Brutalism and that's about 20 years ago. I think he's a very good filmmaker but the Brutalism film, maybe I should be careful about what I say, but I don't think it's one of his best anyway. <laughs> and, um, and he makes a particularly a deli- indelicate comparison between the architecture of brutalism and the architecture of uh, the Nazis. Several things like yeah. English Baroque, sort of high Victorian architecture like sort of SS Toulon and stuff mm. like that, the Atlantic Wall brutalism. And I once kind of challenged him about this publicly and he was like, I never said any of it was true. <laughs> so, well, there we go. We are in the post-fact realm there, I think <laughs> it would be safe to say. And but there is, I mean, it gives you a sense of how brutalism has, has sort of dissolved and become almost ethereal, immaterial. Um, I, think it's I think he wants to prize it away from the independent group. I think it's a quite deliberate measure on his part because he, he knows his history, and I think it's very mm. much a kind of like, I want this not to be about the ICA hipsters. Okay, and he does hate Rainer Bannum as well. Mm. And I think there is there's something I like in there. Because I, well, well Rainer be Bannum is a great historian, but he, I, I think one of the questions that remains in my mind is, was Rainer Bannum a, a good or a bad thing for the architecture that we call brutalism? Um, because reading that article again today of his, it's very subtle, but also rather incoherent. And it strikes me that the thing that it is most of all is actually a plea for, it's a, it's a job application. It's about the importance of architectural history. That's how it starts off, and that's how it ends, actually. And he, he was made the first chair of, uh, the first professor of architectural history at the Bartlett about, Ten years later, ten years after he'd written it, I think. Um, and it's all about him creating a movement, in a way. What's the phrase? Is it Tafuri talking about like, activist history? <laughs> yeah, um, operative, operative, history. operative criticism. Should we, should we forget Bannum? Would that help us to understand brutalism? I, from, from my point of view, I would, I would say keep Bannum, but look at Lawrence Alloway. Because there, there was another critic and theorist, and Alloway's writings in this period are being read by architects and designers and artists as well. Um, but that hasn't the influence of his thinking and theorization of the city and urbanism, and you know the impact of panoramic cinema on and car design and and all of that on the kind of visualization of, of cityscapes. It's there's a whole load that's still left to come. So I think Bannum and let a few others come through. I think that's a good note on which to end our discussion. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.